The following podcast was recorded and produced by lapsed Star Wars enjoyers. While the hosts approach the material with some residual fondness, they are frequently reductive, dismissive, inaccurate, disrespectful, and deeply unfair to George Lucas, Timothy Zahn, and the Star Wars intellectual property in general. If this sounds like a bad time to you, you will have a bad time. Caveat listener, and on to the show. Hello all, and welcome back to uh, the continuing Star Wars saga of the greatest imagination in the history of uh, Western, I was going to say literature, but art, really, uh, Heir to the Empire by uh, Timothy Zahn. That's right, you're listening to Thronderdome, presented by uh, the two wailing jizz masters, Dr. Daniel Dottie and his intrepid co-host, uh, Ronnie Gardaki. Ronnie, how are you feeling tonight? Feeling good. Feeling ready to thrawn. <laughs> I, I, we are we are tanned and thronged and uh, and and ready to go. Uh, it's uh, well, we got some exciting stuff. Really, uh, things. I, I know that we say this every episode, but it feels like maybe things are happening. Um, so that's pretty exciting. And uh, well, I guess we can. I guess we can just get right to it, right? I mean, that's how we. I always forget if we do segments on this show until we start recording. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think we do. I think we hop right into the into the recaps. So, uh, Ronnie, how do you feel about that? You ready to go ahead and and, and let the readers know what's uh, what's been going on? Yeah, sure. All right. Uh, well, right now I'm going to pause to let my cat out because she's meowing. I will edit this part out. I'll be right back. No, no, leave it in. Well, if you're going to leave it in, you need to talk to fill up the air. Fine, here I am talking. Uh, I haven't done much today. I mean, my my doctor's appointment got uh, canceled on me, so I spent the day just watching Law & Order, as I usually do. I'm up to season 16. I started with season 13. Uh, and now I'm right in, the, right in the Dennis Farina years, which are not very good years. For the, for the still, show, yeah. That's still, thank you very much. That was very good, uh, very good fill for our listeners. I appreciate that. Uh, while I dealt with uh, some animal uh, issues there, I mean, at, th- at this point, you're practically a lawyer if you've watched that much Law and Order, right? Yeah, like if, I like if, t- I, I've learned if Timothy Zahn decides like, to like motions to dismiss and and uh, and all sorts of Latin words. Ooh, yeah, that's real fancy. So, like, if Timothy Zahn decides to sue us over what we've been saying and how we're, you know, making, hopefully, making just thousands upon thousands of dollars off of his work, um, like, you'd be able to defend us in court, right? I don't see why not. All right, cool. We're in good shape. Well, in that case, no, knowing that my legal ass is a clear, uh, let's start recapping. <laughs> Heir to the Empire by Timothy Zahn. We're at chapter 11, uh, where we last left off, um, Han had decided that for the sake of their security, after having been ambushed a couple of times by Nogri assassin teams sent by Admiral Thrawn uh, to capture Leia, uh, the pregnant Leia, pregnant with twins, uh, Han has decided he's going to need to call in some of his criminal buddies to help them get some slicer contacts, because they're going to need hacking for, I don't even remember why. It was so, they, so they'd be able to listen in on the diplomatic cables. Is that right? <laughs> I think that's what that ended up 
that's the contrivance for why they need to bring Lando in. Um, so they're on their way to see Lando. Luke Skywalker had a vague feeling, which is really what kind of leads that guy around by the nose. Honestly, he's he's always he's always following up his hunches and gut feelings. Uh, and this one told him he needs to return to Dagobah to help him. I don't know, figure out Jedi stuff. I guess so. I hope everyone is really enjoying Luke being kind of whiny and angsty because we have a whole chapter of that <laughs> coming up. It's it's the good stuff. So we open up chapter eleven with uh, Luke uh, doing atmospheric entry at Dagobah, uh, and he's he's coming in. R two D two is there with him, of course. Uh, they're 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 flying into the cloud shrouded planet, um, and he notices that his his. Uh, his, his sensors have not totally failed. If everyone recalls in Empire Strikes Back, the first time he goes to Dagobah, he has kind of a rough uh, entry into the atmosphere and ends up crash landing into the swamp. Um, so here, uh, Timothy Zahn writes, It was odd, he thought, how it had only been on that first trip into Dagobah that the sensors had so totally failed on approach. Or perhaps not so odd. Perhaps that had been Yoda deliberately suppressing his instruments so as to be able to guide him unsuspectingly to the proper landing site. And Ronnie, there's a, there's a there's an end note for this. Uh, oh boy. So let us let us let us consult the notes where uh, we have here <laughs> So so we just said like Luke Luke was thinking, "Huh, I bet Yoda did something to my instruments." Uh, the note here says, "Luke is actually wrong here." Yoda couldn't have affected his X-Wing systems at that distance. Otherwise, Ben Kenobi wouldn't have had to physically go to the tractor beam station on the Death Star. But Yoda could have affected Luke's perception at the critical time. TZ. That's (laughs) just the same thing. (laughs) Why did you even write that then, man? Like, what is... What voice is this in? I guess this is supposed to be, like, Luke's internal monologue. But, like... I think this is written in like a third person omnipotent narrator voice, right? Like this whole thing has been. Um, That was just a very odd choice to like even throw that in as like, I don't know. I thought that was hilarious to make a note about that. Luke's actually wrong. This isn't what's happening at all. Then there's nothing in the text that's going to tell the reader that. So I don't think that's very important at all. But, you know, just so we know, Timothy Zahn has thought about this. Okay. So don't try to catch him out. I I do like how it, how it reads as though Luke is just thinking, hey, maybe it was just that weird frog man fucking with me the entire time. And that's why my <laughs> that's why my ship was broken. Right. And honestly, like, hey, you know, uh, given with all the times that frog man fucked with him, I think that's a pretty fair presumption. Uh, but anyway, he makes it down safely. You know, nothing's going too wacky. It's just, hey, you know. It's how an X-Wing lands on a swamp planet. Perfect. You know, A+. Plus, you know, 10 out of 10. Um, so he has R2 find a decent landing spot. They set down nicely. But wouldn't you know that that landing spot is next to the spooky cave. Oh, yes. The cave. That thing in Empire Strikes Back, which is just kind of a throwaway scene. Not throwaway scene, but it's kind of an aside to help you, the, the viewer understand that Luke is having feelings about Darth Vader. Um, in Empire Strikes Back, you know, he goes to that cave and has that vision of Darth Vader who attacks him, right? I never thought that was that important of a scene, personally. Apparently, Timothy Zahn thinks that that is one of the key scenes in the entire Star Wars trilogy, because he builds a lot off of that. <laughs> Apparently, that has been sticking in Luke's craw 
ever since it happened, and he still breaks out in a sweat when he thinks about it. So, well, uh, well, think of it this way: there, there are exactly two locations on Dagobah. There's Yoda's house, and there's the cave. If you're not yes, going to use Yoda's Yoda... house, you're going to have to use the cave. <laughs> That's true. And since we landed near the cave, we're going to have to go walk over to Yoda's house. <laughs> so that's the first thing they're going to do. Luke is interested in trying to find something that might help him become a better Jedi teacher. So he's hoping maybe there are some like cool Jedi books left behind, any kind of like kind of material that Yoda might have might have had in his little hovel that can lend him some insight on how to become a great Jedi and a great Jedi trainer. So, um, in an amazingly pointless uh, episode, they go tromping over the swamp, over to Yoda's house, and find that it's just kind of a pile of moss. It's just all crumbled. And Luke has a moment uh, considering the, uh, the different preservational characteristics of various climates, arid versus humid environments. Because he, he reckons that, oh, on Tatooine, an abandoned structure could last for half a century or more, but it never occurred to him. That in a human swamp, that uh, the that the the plants might take over and destroy a uh, a structure in as little as five years, um, so that's also you know. Uh, so he said, beside him, R two twittered a question. I thought Yoda might have left some tapes or books behind. Luke explained. Now, Ronnie, I want you to hold in your mind that Luke knows what books are because he knows that's going to come up a little are. later. He knows what tapes are. He knows what books are. It's going to come up a little bit later uh, in an end note. <laughs> but it turns out there's nothing there. Um, there's just, uh, you know, the, uh, Yoda's little mud hut has kind of collapsed. They find a few, like his little iron cooking pot is kind of, you know, overgrown with moss and being kind of reclaimed by the accumulating mud. So um, Luke bids R2-D2 to uh, extend his little sensor plate and kind of sniff around, see if he can detect anything. Um can, can I talk a bit about take... uh, Can I talk a bit about R two D two for a moment? Uh, Please cause, do, because I've that was the thing I took away from this chapter. Because there's a lot of uh, my my favorite one is uh, the the phrase beside him R two beeped questioningly. Now I don't know how you beep <laughs> in a questioning fashion. I mean, yeah, the conceit yeah. of the character is that okay, he just d- does a bunch of beeps and boops and. Uh, characters intuitively understand what he's trying to say, but when you start, when you start like having, having him, uh, him beep and boop in in like uh, the form of a question or or quizzically or or like just sort of, just sort of like uh, uh, putting all these emotions onto what is just like you know beeps is very strange. <laughs> well- I'm glad you brought that up because there's an end note that addresses this. <laughs> there's one. It's a note for this chapter that says, God damn it, he thinks of everything. <laughs> He's a genius. He's like Admiral Thrawn. Um, or rather, I should say Admiral Thrawn is like Timothy Zahn. Uh, one of the, it says here on the note, one of the challenges I faced was to find a way to describe R2-D2 sounds without having Skywalker sound capitalized to draw on. So I guess they didn't they they didn't give him the tapes of the sound effects. <laughs> I also didn't want to say he beeped every time he said something since that could get boring. So I made up a small note card with alternatives and kept it handy. 
Hence, at various spots throughout the book are two warbles, chirps, twitters, grunts, gurgles, jabbers, beeps, and probably a few others that I've forgotten. Amazing what an hour with a thesaurus can accomplish. TZ. But that still doesn't uh, address my problem, which is, how do you beep in a questioning fashion? It, yeah, I don't... Well, impossible. you do it with like a... You, well, you do it, you do it with, um, with like with the lilt, like the upspeak. You go beep beep beep, you know, like that. Done. Okay, sorted. I guess I guess we <laughs> I guess we're we're talking to an R two D two language expert here. Uh, hey, I have been known to dabble in skimming Wikipedia articles about many languages, so you know I can consider myself something of an expert. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, so they R two D two puts his little sensors out, and he decides that he is uh he's found a thing uh there's there's something he's he's getting some readings on uh but as it turns out those signals that he's picking up lead back to the cave the other location on Dagobah <laughs> so they go walking back to the cave uh, Luke feels uh bad he feels icky and sad uh he walks into the cave and doesn't like it uh, it's got bad vibes. Um, he's relieved that he does not face another vision of Darth Vader, which, you know, why would he? That was five years ago. You're, you're in a different place now, man. But what he does get is a vision of himself. He's, he's, he's catapulted back in time to uh, the part at the beginning of Return of the Jedi where he's on the little hover skiff about to be uh, dunked into the Sarlacc pit. Yeah, so he's still uh, flashing and, back uh, to five years ago. He's still flashing back to five years ago. And, and so he's he's there in his vision. He sees R2-D2 at the ship, and so he's like, okay, cool, I'll give him my signal. He'll shoot the lightsaber over to me, and then uh, we'll save the day. And so and so he does. The lightsaber, you know, poof, goes flying out of R2. It's, uh, he's reaching out with it, but someone else reaches out with the Force before him. It swoops over into the grip of the hand of a slender woman standing alone at the top of the barge. And meanwhile, he gets spear-poked in the back, right into the pit of the Sarlacc, while the woman laughs and laughs. No! Luke shouted, and as suddenly as it had appeared, the vision vanished. He's back in the cave at Dagobah. Uh, He's sweating. R2 is upset. Um, But he's had a vision. He's had a vision of a slender woman who hates him and has force powers. I wonder who that could be. Foreshadowing. Talon um, card. Anyway, he goes. Oh wait, no. It's Talon, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's it's uh yeah exactly it's Talon it's Talon card. Um, anyway, no he uh so he goes deeper into the cave and finds the whatever R two was picking up with his sensors. However the fuck sensors work in this universe. Um, it's described as a small, somewhat flattened cylinder a little longer than his hand, with five triangular rust-encrusted keys. And I picture something that looks like, I guess, kind of a, like a Bic lighter, I guess. Like, a, I guess, bigger. But a, a small, somewhat flattened cylinder strikes me as like that's what a lighter is shaped like. Um, he has no idea what it is. He asks R2 what he thinks it is. Uh, and R2-D2 cannot really identify it, but apparently he's indicating that he saw something like that back on Cloud City. Uh, so that's why Luke needs to go find Lando. So they're going to pack up. They, they get all their stuff together, and they blast off from Dagobah uh, to go see 
Lando Calrissian. That's chapter eleven. Chapter twelve. Uh, w- w- would you we'll would just... you like to hear my uh, one sentence summary of chapter eleven? Uh, please do, please. Uh, Luke Skywalker goes to the swamp to find some computer garbage. <laughs> that's exactly it, <laughs> and that's really, and that's really all we needed from that. It's a, uh, I guess this is like a character moment. But this is the same character moment Luke has been having since the beginning, where he's like, nah, I'm a crappy teacher. I don't know what I'm doing. Nah. So, I know. I'm getting a little... I mean, I, you know, I should trust the master Timothy's on when it comes to, you know, story craft, when it comes to narrative design. Uh, but, you know, I'm having my doubts. I'm having my doubts about this one. Oh, I just found it interesting that, like, uh, the entirety of the Jedi class is now concentrated in the... in, like, a a hillbilly who doesn't know anything and, and that the only (laughs) people he can teach this stuff to is his, uh, his twin sister and his unborn niece and nephew. Yeah. He's keeping it in the family and he's going on, you know, what maybe like, uh, a day and a half worth of training with Ben Kenobi. And then he did like a couple of weeks worth of like swamp running training. Like, I don't think he's actually like, there's not even like a Jedi Bible he can <laughs> he can look to. This is a purely like oral tradition, apparently, and he's really got none of it. So you know what I, you know what Luke, I understand your imposter syndrome, uh, and I think I think that's what we can call this. We can we can say Luke has imposter syndrome, you know. Finally, someone I can relate uh, to. But <laughs> that's right. He's, he has imposter syndrome and anxiety. Um, and he's really a former the, gifted the child. Millennial. <laughs> so anyway, moving moving on from uh, from Luke Skywalker's uh, shortcomings. Um, here we are, chapter twelve. We open up. This is uh, Han and Leia and Chewie and C three PO are all on board the Millennium Falcon, traveling to go meet uh, uh, Lando Calrissian. A classic setup. Um, so they are traveling to the planet Nklon, N-K-L-L-O-N. Thank you again, Timothy. Uh, and they're intercepted by the security forces there. There's a, a B-Wing fighter runs up beside them, is asking for transit permits. Um, they don't have transit permits. Uh, you know, Han was just betting on Lando just knowing an old friend. But because he's paranoid about Imperial spies, he can't say who he is. So he tells the, 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 the space cop to tell Lando that an old friend is here and wants to play a hand of Sabak. Uh, so apparently that's going to be enough to get Lando to understand what's going on. Um, so uh, it's a couple minutes later, the, the, they get it. Uh, the transmitter crackles back to life. The space cop is waving him through. He says, all right, General Calrissian has authorized a special transit waiver for you. Um, so they're going to, uh, wait for their escort because on this planet, it is extremely close to a super, super blazing sun. So to travel to the planet, you have to have, uh, you have to do so within the shadow of a gigantic shield ship, which is described as being something like a, uh, you know, like an umbrella, basically, you know, they have like a big umbrella and then a, 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 a spire sticking out from behind it, which encloses all the engines and whatnot for this ship. <clears throat> so uh so this ship uh comes up 
you know, uh, oh, as described here, resembled a monstrous flying umbrella. So we know that there are umbrellas in Star Wars. Um, and uh, they get on the horn. There's a little more uh, bit of bants between <laughs> the the the, uh, the pilot or whoever on board the shield ship. They're asking to transmit his slave circuit code. Uh, Han is like, no, we don't we don't do that. I never relinquish control of my ship to anybody uh buddy um and so it as it turns out because they can't this is i don't even bother want to bother explaining this but uh, because it, take, Han it is takes them uh, 10 slaver, hours instead of one hour or whatever <laughs> right <laughs> because because han isn't is an infosec guy and he's not giving out his his shit uh, it's going to take them 10 hours at sublight speed to make a trip, which is typically done in one hour. Uh, so as they as they are, uh, you know, they're, they're going back and forth on this. Um, this takes like three pages. Um, and then there is a, uh, they, they come up, there's another unidentified ship coming up uh, to, uh, to hitch a ride with this particular shield ship again. And uh, this did actually have a line that I did think was pretty funny. So they see there's, you know, there's another ship coming. The hairs on the back of Han's neck began to tingle. Another ship that just happened to be coming into Enclon at the time they were? You have an ID on that other ship? He asked. The other snorted. Hey, friend, we don't even have an ID on you. <laughs> which, which I thought was pretty good. And exactly the kind of attitude I would take if I was dealing with this kind of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't like how snarky these guys are because there's another line where where the guy says like okay by me unidentified ship I get paid by the hour anyway so it's like yeah 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 I don't know it, they're they're a bit too lippy for my taste and not very professional I think I'm I'm gonna talk to their manager about this um and that manager is of course the only brother in space Lando Calrissian uh so, as it turns out, they're, they're all nervous about this other ship coming up, which, you know, fair. Uh, but it's small, it's completely hidden on the other side of the the shield ship. Interference is getting in the way, so there's like a couple pages of some tension there. But then it, it resolves like, oh, it's an X-Wing with Republic markings. And Luke hails in. Hello, strangers, good to see you. And Han is not buying it. He's 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 too paranoid now. Uh, so it you know it looks like Luke's X-wing, but of course remember the last time that they almost got got. I mean you know the Imperials had had you know they got their hands on a on a, a ship identical to the Millennium Falcon. So so Han's playing it careful. Uh, he's he's trying to suss out how to do this, and Leia has the idea of uh, you know she's she's like hey uh, can you reach out with the Force? And she's like yeah it's Luke, and he's like uh you know I don't know almost positive that's not good enough. So she has an idea to put C-3PO on the horn with R2-D2. And C-3PO and R2-D2 have their classic lover's quarrel. And Han knows, okay, that's Luke Skywalker. It's uh, quite a little moment that took five boring pages <laughs> to make happen. <laughs> I noticed that, that in this uh, passage, Zahn uh, describes 3PO's voice as prissy, which it, it seems yeah. to be like just barely concealed code here at this point uh, almost certainly yeah yeah it's really I i'm mean, just waiting i'm just waiting for it. him to to refer to uh, c3po as a confirmed bachelor 
<laughs> you could be like uh, uh, C-3PO engaged with his diplomatic protocol, employing the long handshake. <laughs> C-3PO, the center square of Hollywood squares. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. We'll, we'll see. We'll see if Timothy's uh, thesaurus uh, has a lot of uh, entries for friend of Dorothy in it. <laughs> but, but anyway. Uh, they all get it together. They haul this truck and convoy 10 hours uh, until they're uh, within the umbra of the planet, protected from the uh, the solar radiation. Han talks a little bit about uh, Lando's mining operation and how he has uh, acquired 100 mole miners. Ah, he's got all those mole miners uh, for his, his mining outfit. Uh, so they're... They're they're flying in. They're just kind of talking about all this stuff. It's not really worth going into. Um, they get. I, I, I have a line and... of dialogue I I like to to highlight. Uh, oh, Leia sure. says Leia says first Bespin now Nuklin. Have you ever known Lando when he wasn't involved in some kind of crazy scheme? And I'm thinking to myself, what is it? Why? How is like setting up mining on a planet a crazy <laughs> scheme? <laughs> That seems to be just like sort of trying to get resources, and and for, yeah, as it's, for it's... as for Bespin, it seems like he was just you know his crazy scheme was known as capitalism. I'll grant you is a crazy like... scheme, but still, <laughs> his crazy scheme was he had this like this nice floating uh, gas mining operation where, you know, he dressed well and seemed to be having a good time. What a wacky guy. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. You're right. Like it's a crazy scheme, you know, because he's, he got these mole miners. Uh, I don't know, man. Um, So they get through. There's also something, there's also, uh, sorry to interrupt again, but there's also one other thing I want to highlight is the line. Those are what? Those asteroid ships we helped him get from Stonehill Industries? And to me, it's just really <laughs> funny that there's an entity known as Stonehill Industries in the far-flung, ridiculous universe of Star Wars. Hey, uh, Ronnie, I have a note for that. Oh, boy. So, we have a note after Stonehill Industries. This was a shout-out to the Stonehill Science Fiction Club of Tampa, Florida. Which puts on the Necronomicon convention every October. TZ. He's probably a guest of honor there. <laughs> he's he's like Lord. He's Lord King Prince of Nerds in Tampa. Uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> so um, they get cleared for landing at Nomad City, and then take a they they take a look at it, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna complain about something again here. It's astonishing, I know, but we sometimes we have to complain on this show. You know, sometimes on this podcast, we have to complain about something. Um, It says here, it took Han's brain a handful of seconds to resolve the monster into its component parts, this nomad city, this walking city. The old dreadnought cruiser on top, the 40 captured Imperial AT-ATs underneath it, carrying it across the ground. The shuttles and pilot vehicles moving around it and in front of it. All right, and here we go. This is the same problem with description that we've encountered before. I mean, you can presume audience familiarity with something like an Imperial AT-AT, okay? It's in the films. Everyone knows what it looks like. Very famous. Bunch of toys. Whatever. What the fuck is a Dreadnought Cruiser? How the hell am I supposed to know what that looks like? That wasn't in any of the movies. 
It's not like you can say Star Destroyer and I know it's a big triangle with a mast on top. Or you say the Millennium Falcon and I know that it's like a circle with the with the triangle on the front or whatever. What the, what the fuck does a Dreadnought Cruiser look like? I don't know. Ronnie, do you know? Well, it says the old Dreadnought Cruiser, so you're supposed <laughs> to be familiar with it. I, su- I, I suppose so. And as we've said before, this is a, this is a non-Wikipedia space. We will never look any of this up do you do all right i hope our listeners understand this we are dealing with this text entirely with the knowledge that we bring from being lapsed star wars fans from some time ago and and mainly working with the text of the movies uh and this text that we have here and i would also point out that like timothy zong can only be assuming that whoever's reading this had the text of the movies to work with as well right I mean, that's who this was aimed for, would be like people who've seen the movies a bunch of times and like them a lot. But then I think it would be incumbent on you to at least provide some kind of description for a vehicle that did not appear in the movies. Maybe it appeared in the tabletop RPG that Timothy Zahn wrote for. I'm assuming that's where this is from. But if it's not in the movies, you're going to have to give us something. Um, anyway, I'd, I, 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 every time this comes, this comes up, I, I really notice it. And it really annoys me. Um, but they, they, they get in range and a familiar voice comes on the, uh, on the old horn saying, Welcome to Nomad City. What's this about playing a hand to Sabak? And Han grins. He's talking with Lando. Lando and Han back together again. Um, Luke chimes in saying, Oh, this place is amazing. Everyone's going to have a fun, uh, fun kind of reunion. Uh, and then all of a sudden there's an electronic squeal from the transmitter that someone's jamming them. They're being jammed, and uh, so they're trying to figure out what the what the heckaroonie is going on. And all of a sudden, they see an Imperial Star Destroyer coming in fast into the planetary shadow. Han looked at Leia, saw her face turn to stone as she looked back at him. They found us, she whispered, and that's the end of chapter twelve. And Ronnie, I have the best note I have ever seen ready for this. Uh. Oh no no okay there's a couple notes that I want that I want to read for this. So uh, a, a little bit earlier they they're about to land um and says uh, don't forget there's no air Lando says don't forget there's no air here. Make sure you wait for the docking tube to connect before you try popping the hatch. Uh and there's a note for that. Before he became a full-time novelist, Tim was a grad student shooting for a PhD in physics. Here is just one place where he brings his science background into play. Checking for breathable air is always a good idea before jumping out of your ship on a strange planet. BM. Folks, we have a note from someone who isn't TZ. Yes, this is... uh... (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) It's a fucking book about space wizards. You don't need science in here. For fucking real. That was my first thought, was just like... When has anyone ever bothered for checking breathable air in a Star War? I uh, the only the only example I can think of is uh, from Empire Strikes Back, where they they fly into the cave on the asteroid to hide from Darth Vader, and it turns out it's the big space slug. But they go out to like check the ship for damage, and they're wearing little like uh, like the masks that come down on the airplane when you're about to crash and die. But they're wearing those. That's the only time I've ever seen it indicated anywhere that anyone would need some other way to breathe than just stepping outside and taking a big old breath. 
But I but, would love. But I would Saint love Pete. a. I would love a scene of Luke Skywalker just in the vacuum of space, just breathing air, just having a great time. Yeah. Um, but hey, that's the kind of that's the kind of accuracy and science you bring to the, you bring to bear when your Timothy's on, right? <laughs> so anyway, and that's BM is the initials of Betsy Mitchell, who was uh, Mr. Zahn's editor on this project. She she was the editor at uh, I believe Bantam Spectra uh, published these books. So <clears throat> so that's who BM is, and she has another note. Uh, the, the footnote, uh, came after Leia whispered, they found us here, the last line of the chapter and, uh, <laughs> it says here, best-selling writers often use the literary device of the cliffhanger to grip readers. How many times have you stayed up far too late at night because something enthralling happens at the end of a chapter and you simply have to find out what happens next. Tim brings the use of the cliffhanger to a high art in air. I defy anyone to put this book down after a closing line like Leia's. BM. <laughs> I could easily call it. <laughs> I could. It would be no challenge. I can put my bookmark in and have a good night. The, I would. I think it's a stretch to call a chapter-ending cliffhanger a literary device. I think that's gussying it up a little bit. And moreover, I'm sorry, but it's hack. It's hack stuff. It's like James Patterson. This is what James Patterson does. He has those three-page chapters, and they always end on a line that says, and then she heard the last thing she ever wanted to hear. It's, it's, or, or it's, it's like not, a fucking goose. It's, it's like a fucking Goosebumps book. Like every yeah. chapter just ends with like, <laughs> and, then, and then something came from behind him. Right. It's not it's not a literary device deftly used by a master. It's 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 hack work. It's cheap heat. It's not it's not anything, but this professional editor thought he did a great job <laughs> working those in there. And you know, and she's right because Ronnie, this is not our stopping point. We have to push on to chapter 13 for our recap this episode. Oh boy! Uh, unless you want, unless you wanted any more commentary on the the uh, the bickering with uh, space roughnecks chapter, I was just thinking back to chapter eleven and how uh, Dagobah apparently has birds and lizards, and the the Timothy Zahn only deigns to describe them as birds and lizards. So <laughs> yeah, so it, it's like the it's like the. It's like the book is rapidly running out of budget for like uh, creature design, so it's just like, oh, what about this? Uh, what about this gold finch? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a space bird. Well, yeah, it was, he's, he's going to be like uh, he's going to be like Lenny talking about uh, today's super animals at the Springfield NRA meeting. Like, we got to deal with today's super animals, like the flying squirrel and the electric eel. And but not even that. He's just saying iguana. like lizards. I think this iguana is pretty sharp. <laughs> um, so, uh, oh, but one thing. I, oh, I want to say. Remember how I asked you to remember that uh, Mr. Zahn mentioned books earlier. That Luke said to himself, "I wonder if there's any books here." Uh, at one point, when Han is arguing with the uh, with the with the bantery uh, roughnecks, he uh, he says he'll know it's me, provided that some middle level button pusher out there loosens up and sends it in. 
middle level button pusher. There's a note for that, which reads, there is apparently no paper in the Star Wars universe. So the term paper pusher is again one of those that needs a little tweaking. TZ. What's going on? Are we maybe <laughs> are we may, maybe all books are books on tape? That might be it. It's they're all ebooks. He has like a like a thumb drive, and uh, and that's what all all the books are. Um, but but man, I, I can't immediately I can't, was like I can't overstate how tickled I was by the by that uh, that passage where uh, Luke was looking for books and tapes because I just spent like five minutes just imagining like Luke Skywalker with a Walkman listening to Credence. <laughs> Luke Skywalker with a Walkman listening to an Anthony Robbins motivational tape to get better at being a Jedi. <laughs> or just some, or just some jizz music. Just the mm-hmm. cantina he's, he's music. Jizz Whalen. He's he's there. He's got his uh, he's got his boombox, or as they call it in the Star Wars universe, his his thunder stone. I don't fucking know. Oh, oh my god! Um, and, yeah, the idea, I, of, I, the, the idea of tapes is just amazing to me. The tapes would <laughs> would be in the in this futuristic world. I mean, we got rid of tapes in well, like two thousand three. Yeah, and I don't. Look, the thing is, I think with Star Wars, like. And I think it's one of the things that is actually interesting about the setting is that it's it's it has a kind of timelessness with its futurism and everything's very worn and lived in and it and there's a lot of stuff that like you know I mean like Lando still has to use little pig slaves on Cloud City, right? Like it's not just completely automated or whatever. Like it's a kind of halfway future in a lot of ways. So I could see there being like tapes or or they just call them tapes you know it's some sort of recording medium that they just call tapes or something i don't know i I know in some of the other eu stuff some of the other um expanded universe stuff they have like jedi hologram cubes which store you know like holograms of people talking or whatever so maybe that's what they mean when they say tape i don't know he did say he he did say it, he it did say just... book, but there's no paper in the Star Wars universe. And furthermore, why does Timothy Zahn think there's no paper in Star Wars? <laughs> why does he think that? Why would there be <laughs> no paper it... in Star Wars? Why, would, why wouldn't there be any paper in Star Wars? Like, I guess I'm thinking, like, maybe we haven't seen paper in any of the movies. But I don't think that not indicates to, that there's to, no such thing as not paper. Not to get too... Not to get too crass here, but you know, toilet paper is paper. <laughs> That's a really good point. What are they? What are they gonna? What are they gonna wrap the 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 Gundark and chips in when you go down the pub? You know, on the on the British planet, if they're not gonna wrap it in uh, in newspaper. Yeah, what the hell? This. This has so many frightening implications. <laughs> it's just a really bizarre thing to insist on and to explain it in the terms of like, that's why I said button pusher instead of paper pusher. <laughs> like, what, man? <laughs> this has like, I think, pretty dire implications for like how, yeah, for how culture is disseminated 
in, in this setting. And it's just an aside for like, nah, here's why I had to come up with a new phrase. Oh, what an amazing book. This is such a good book. Um, <laughs> but it's such a good book. And I was so drawn in from that, uh, that cliffhanger. I just got to move on. We got to talk about chapter 13. Um, so chapter 13 goes back to Luke as the point of view character. He is uh, reassuring R2-D2 that R2-D2 is, of course, freaking out. He warbled a nervous-sounding acknowledgement so that he warbled nervously, uh, Ronnie. Um, so uh, the, the X-Wing and the Millennium Falcon pull out of landing approach and head straight for that, uh, that Star Destroyer. Uh, Luke gets on the horn. with. Apparently they work around like the jamming or the encryptions or whatever. Uh, Luke gets on the horn with Han. They kind of work out their plan that Luke's going to charge in first when the uh, the TIE fighters come out to try to confuse them and draw them off and maybe use Jedi mind tricks on them. Uh, and then Han can come in and blast them after that. Uh, but Luke is uh, a little... He's a little nervous about this. He's, his imposter syndrome kicks in because this is his first space combat as a full Jedi. Note. This line is undoubtedly out of date now with the other books that have been written in the gap between Return of the Jedi and Air. But it was true when I wrote it. TZ. <laughs> so, <laughs> covering his ass in case some nerd tries to nail him at uh, the next convention. Um, but, uh, good to so, know. So Luke's a little... Yeah, yeah, that's good to know. Luke's a little unsure. Uh, the, the, the TIE fighters come out. It's just one squadron, I guess, of 12, because they had formed into three four-ship groups. So that's, I guess, standard... Uh, Standard formation there for them. It's this TIE fighters and a couple of big, bulky transports that they see. Might be troop carriers. They don't know. Um, Luke goes into... He reaches out to the Force, right? He enters the the Force trance, basically. He's up there. He's messing with everyone's perceptions. Um, He's thinking back to when he confused the giant pig guys, the pig guards at Jabba's palace. And uh, was was wondering whether he was edging into dark Jedi territory for doing stuff like this. Uh, he's he's all up in his head when he hears a voice. You will come to me, Luke. The voice said, "You must come to me. I will await you." Oh, so there we got someone reaching out through the Force, telling Luke, "Come and meet me." Uh, Luke kind of snaps out of it there. He's hearing uh he's 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 hearing his name being called out through the the comms chatter there and he he croaks back like uh Leia and uh it turns out it's like half an hour later. <laughs> he's 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 kind of it's kind of what happened when he was using the uh, the little training zapper uh last time that we that we recorded. Uh he's he's prone to going into these fugue states, I guess when he's using his force stuff. Uh, but there was a couple of, uh, he blasted a couple of the TIE fighters, but they scrambled. They didn't really do anything that no one really shot anything up. Um, the, uh, the, the trans, you know, those big bulky things went down to the planet and then went back and everything seems fine. Um, yeah, everyone's kind of confused as to what just happened. So then we switch over our point of view over to the bridge of the Chimera where uh, the Imperial gang is monitoring. This was Judicator. This was one of the other uh, 
Star Destroyers, the one that had been modified for withstanding the high radiation of the of the giant sun at Nikolon. Um, but they're monitoring what the Judicator is doing back on the Chimera, and uh, Peleon announces that they're all clear, Admiral. So we have Thrawn, Peleon, and uh, Master Cabeo. They're all all there. They're hanging out. Uh, <laughs> this was, <laughs> I think, a great line. They fulfilled the... So he says, so, Master Kabaoth, Thrawn says. They fulfilled their mission, Kabaoth said, that strangely taut expression on his face again. They obtained 51 of the mole minor machines you sent them for. 51, Thrawn repeated with obvious satisfaction. Excellent. <laughs> so this was on the smash and grab to get those mole miners that they needed for Thrawn's plan that he mentioned earlier, which we still don't know all the, the shape of. Um... Thrawn and Kabaoth kind of bicker a little bit because uh, Kabaoth says, like, uh, a slight smile, like, oh, you kind of look like you were straining there for a second, Kabaoth. What's going on? And he says, like, oh, I had a conversation with Luke Skywalker. <laughs> Which uh, Peleon and Thrawn are both taken aback by because they thought that his he was still back, you know, on Coruscant or whatever. Uh, Thrawn is pissed off that uh, Kabaoth didn't say anything to him about it while it was all still going on. Uh, Kabaoth is like, all right, I'm all drained, so I'm going away now, back to my chambers, bye-bye. So Thrawn is left there with Peleon, and they are not happy with with how that all went. And so Peleon and Thrawn are a little worried that it throws off the plan, because if you recall, their plan was to spread rumors about Kabaoth being on Jomark. They do their smashing grabs and then have time to get Kabaoth to Jomark in time for Luke Skywalker to find out about it to then go there. But they think this is going to throw off their timeline. And then they have this whole big conversation about like working out, crunching the numbers on whether like how fast an X-Wing can make that trip. And they determine that they can still, like, beat them. And it's just kind of... I was not exactly sure what all... I don't know. I'm not exactly sure what all the moving parts are here in Thrawn's plan. But apparently, what they're going to try to do is drop Kabaoth over on Jomark to get ready to meet Skywalker. But then double back and ambush Skywalker to capture him themselves as some other kind of... To show Kabaoth who's boss, I guess. I'm not exactly clear what's <laughs> what this is setting up for, but that is uh, the end of, of chapter thirteen. And uh, and Ronnie, what what did what did you think of it? Well, I have a couple notes. Uh, one of them is uh, a a picture that that uh, Zahn uh, painted with words. That is uh, the phrase uh, he reached a hand. Uh, Thrawn, uh, that is Thrawn reached a hand up to stroke the Yalisamir draped over his command chair. I just really like picturing, like, this salamander creature just draped over a chair that Thrawn is sitting in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're really making themselves at home. You know, for for being so... Because uh, when they were first introduced, the Isalamiri were, like... It sounded like they were, like, parasitical on this particular tree, on this particular planet. So they had to be really, like... They had to d- come up with a lot of, like, workarounds to get them to survive anywhere else. But now it's just kind of, like, draped across his chair, purring, I guess. They've really they've really adapted to life on the Star Destroyer. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like a Blofeld's cat in uh, James Bond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and apparently something there is something mysterious going on with, uh, with those guys, of course. Uh, they mentioned Thrawn was mentioning uh, that they... 
they need to keep Kabaoth away from his home planet of Wayland, at least until work on the Sparty cylinders is finished, and we have all the Isalamiri that we're going to need. So I'm guessing the Sparty cylinders must be the cloning equipment, and they're they're going to be mass producing the uh, the the finicky force suppressing furry scaly salamander thingies. Um, that's all part of the plan. Now there was a really great note <laughs> at this paragraph, which I'm going to share with you here, Ronnie. Uh, so here's here's a note. Uh, there was the 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 little numeral three after the word Thrawn it says. A small thing that I never would have anticipated and never even knew before I was invited to a Star Wars convention in Munich. The THR combination apparently doesn't exist in German, or so I was told. German Star Wars fans, therefore, have terrific difficulty pronouncing Thrawn's name. And like, man, since when do you give a flying fuck about pronounceability (laughs) in any of your stuff? Like you're over here, I'm struggling with Nikolaylon and Bipfashi, and uh, and you were like, oh, apparently Thrawn is difficult to pronounce in German. Like you have a lot of shit that's difficult to pronounce in English, buddy. But anyway, finally, Ger- um, finally, Germany has a problem. <laughs> he, he he is right though that the the thr combination does not exist in German, but more specifically, it's the th sound. The Germans do not use the what is in the English orthography represented with the th used to be its own letter called thorn but is now the th that th 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 sound that kind of uh, that uh, that non-voiced frictive i believe is the linguistic term um so they typically will just render that as a hard t so germans would probably be saying admiral tron uh which is kind of funny to think about listen anyway, buddy all German... i know about the german language is from rammstein lyrics so <laughs> well you'll notice that they never use a th sound in any of those lyrics uh, you're right. Yeah, right, go back and right. listen. Huh? When I'm right, I'm right. Yeah. I thought that was a very funny thing to make a note of. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with anything that's going on. We've seen the word Thrawn a hundred times by this point in the book, and he just now decides to mention that, oh, yeah, it turns out Germans can't say it. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, but there we are. So that's uh, th- those are all the chapters that we that we read for uh, for today. Um, I guess Ronnie, what do you do? You have any feelings about uh, about how this is going? Where we're at? I really like the setup of the 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 enemy faction here because you got Thrawn, who's like a a master tactician. You've got uh, Pleon, who's kind of like your your viewpoint character. Your maybe your only sane man, as it were. And then you got Kabaeth, sure. who's just like a deranged clone homeless man <laughs> it, it, they do make for a pretty powerful uh dramaturgical triad uh, i i do like where they're all they're all hanging out uh and getting under each other's skin yeah and yeah. i really like how uh Pleon has the idea that that they should uh try to capture uh, luke skywalker alive as opposed to killing him like thrawn suggests because uh yeah, he, he says uh, particularly since his death might induce Kabaeth to leave Jomark and return to Wayland. And yeah, I and yeah. I also like how and I also like how Thrawn is like, yeah, well we can uh, we can deal with uh, Skywalker ourselves and uh, and uh, and Kabaeth uh, 
should probably have more success uh, with uh, Leia and uh, the twins, bending them to his will. Yeah. Yeah, it's I, I, really weird. I, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that I, I did think that was funny when they mentioned, that, like, uh, if Skywalker's death might induce Cabales to leave Jomark and return to Wayland. How? You're his ride. He's, he's, he's like, dozens or hundreds of light years away from his own planet right now because you gave him a lift. How's he going to get back? I guess he'll use, like, force powers, hitchhiking. Yeah, he is a crazy homeless man. I mean, they have ways of getting around. Uh, I suppose. Well, that okay. That was insensitive in terms of mental illness and homelessness. Two very serious things. Oh man, what if, what if that what if that man. what if that that cylinder that Luke finds uh, that alien script was actually hobo code? <laughs> it was. Yeah, that's right. It was. It was hobo fence post marks. Kabayoth <laughs> is going to see that, and his eyes are going to get wide. <laughs> like, oh my god, you have this. You have the sacred texts. It's like it's like he interprets it like ah yes and and uh, and you see here this rune means that there is a cooling pie on a windowsill in this direction. Just remember, Daniel, I'll always make more offensive remarks than you do, so you can appear as the quote unquote good guy of the podcast. <laughs> That's true. I, I never have to interrogate my own prejudices as long as you're around, Ronnie. Thank you so much for that. That's that's one of the reasons why we're such good friends. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh so that wraps up our, our recap portion of the show um again we have kind of at least we didn't have another episode of of the dobbies trying to kidnap people that was a little tiresome two times in a row uh thrawn is getting more of his chess pieces in place we still have no idea what his actual plan is so that's kind of fun it's kind of like i don't know it's kind of like watching a, a young child play with you know, you're not quite sure what what's going on in their head, but they seem to be having a good time. <laughs> but that does mean uh, I'm afraid. Well, we can't we can't leave off on a cliffhanger, I guess. Uh, except for you know, it's all set up, but we don't have a cool line. Uh, so that's that's a little sad. But uh, but we do leave off here, and it's it's now time to move on to the next segment of the show, where Ronnie and I enter the titular Thronderdome to struggle as the thesis and antithesis we meet on the field of mental battle to debate the greatest issues of the day. And Ronnie, what, what is today's topic to be, to be wrestled over and reckoned with by us, the warriors of the mind? Dinosaurs, specifically whether or not they should have feathers. <laughs> See, this is good. This is very much my wheelhouse. I, uh, listeners, I don't know if, if you know much about me. I, I have a, an abiding fascination with paleontology. Uh, and, uh, and, and, of course, dinosaurs are, are a big part of that. I love the science of it, which means uh, you know, I, I'm up on all the papers and whatnot. And, and feathers have been a very big thing over the last uh, couple decades. Now, Ronnie, what, what's your take on feathers on dinosaurs? I hate them. I, I hate them. Uh, they're terrible, and I don't like them. <laughs> now, is this from, like, like I guess a... I guess from an aesthetic standpoint, right? Like, it just, it just looks wrong to you. Is that it? Partially. Uh, 
I think uh, when you when you look at uh, drawings of dinosaurs when they have uh, supposedly accurate uh, feathering, they just look like turkeys. They look like chickens. They they look ridiculous. They, they don't look scary. They don't look cool. They they look dumb. They look stupid. No. Oh. <laughs> so I mean, do you think like do you think birds look dumb and stupid because they have feathers? Yes, uh, obviously. I mean, <laughs> birds are. Why? Why do you think we have the 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 term bird brain? Because of the feathers, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> no, like I guess I just mean so like so like a hawk or an owl like those don't look cool to you because they have feathers. Well, I mean, they they look fine. I mean, but they're like you know the right size for for having feathers. I mean, oh, you see a Tyrannosaurus yeah, yeah, yeah. Rex with feathers. I mean, it's ridiculous. That's a good point. We only know, like, you know, we only know feathers as an integument on, you know, pretty small animals. Uh, I, I guess that's a good point. Now, Ronnie, like, I'm a man, gonna... like, a, like, imagine if an elephant had feathers. Just ridiculous. I, I'm imagining it now. It's 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 terrific. Um... <laughs> now, I am of course going to because Ronnie took the con side. I am honor bound to take the pro side. Not only honor bound, but science bound. Because Ronnie, let me tell you something. Facts don't care about your feelings. All right, buddy. Oh uh, no! And the fact of the matter <laughs> that that's right. My inspiration every time I enter the Thronder Dome, every time we spill intellectual blood on the sand of the sacred Thronder Dome. I am, of course, inspired by and led by the guiding light of debate and intellectual competition, Ben Shapiro, uh, who is, of course, my, my personal hero and, <laughs> and role model. I couldn't even get that out without breaking. <laughs> but anyway, to, to bring it on back, to bring it on back, I think, Ronnie, you, you, you got to grapple with the fact. Now, now here's, here's, here's something that you'll probably take to heart. And that is that there is not a there is no direct evidence of feathering on large theropods like Tyrannosaurus Rex. There isn't. Like we haven't found any actual feather impressions, anything like that. The the theorizing that comes in with putting feathers on the larger dinosaurs comes from the fact that it well it's it's a method called phylogenetic bracketing where uh, well I, I won't I won't get all into it. The point being is that because the close relatives of these animals were feathered, then there's a presumption that, well, we need to think about what would, you know, would there be some kind of feathery covering, at least partially, on some of these animals? So it's all conjecture when it comes to the, the, the big ones, you know, like, uh, like Tyrannosaurus rex. And you can also take heart in the fact that your, uh, your Triceratopses, your Stegosauruses, those definitely did not have feathers. We, we, we know that for pretty sure. Um... Some of their smaller relatives had feather or hair-like, kind of bristle-like, almost like porcupine spikes, which is really cool. Uh, a, ver- a very early uh, ornithopod, or, or I guess basal ornithischian uh, heterodontosaurus, is known for remains where it has like kind of porcupine quills. And uh, Psittacosaurus, there are some very well-preserved specimens of Psittacosaurus, which was an early ceratopsian that just kind of looked like a... It didn't have a, any horns or a frill, but it had the parrot beak. Uh, and it had these like big porcupine quills coming off its tail. Um, so if 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 you're worried about triceratopses or 
ankylosaurs or someone having feathers. Don't worry. There's no evidence of that. They may have had, like, cool manes of spikes, like quills and bristles, which is neat to think about. Um, but I, at the end of the day, though, you got to face facts, Ronnie. There's a lot of beautiful specimens coming out, especially the, uh, the J-hole formations in, uh, in China. There's beautiful specimens preserving all the feathers there. There's even been, and this is very cool, this was a few years ago, there's even been analysis on the feathers where they can zoom in with an electron microscope and look at the, the fossilization is so good that it retains the uh, pigment structures in the feathers. And so that scientists are able to reconstruct what the actual coloration of those feathers were. So we know for a fact that uh, Cenosauropteryx, uh, one of these little feathered uh, meat-eating snappers, uh, from that formation in China was uh, kind of ginger colored with white stripes on its tail. Isn't that fun? So what, it, as far as I can, <laughs> as far as I can tell, what you're saying is all of the new crappy dinosaurs have feathers, whereas the classic cool dinosaurs don't. And I guess that's a compromise I'm willing to live with. <laughs> now I, I will have to say, one there there is a group that uh that kind of throws a wrench in that because the raptors your dromaeosaurids like velociraptor and deinonychus those were definitely definitely feathered um so i'm sorry to say those are some classic dinosaurs that that get the feather treatment but by and large you are correct like the the big classics none of the none of the sauropods like the long necks the brachiosaurs and the brontosaurs and everything none of them had feathers um, Iguanodon didn't have feathers. You're in the clear there. It was mostly a small-bodied theropod thing. But that does mean that Velociraptor was absolutely, definitely covered in feathers. They've even found on, the, on, its, uh, on its arm bones, they found the places where big, uh, like, like big almost like would look like flight feathers on a, on a bird wing attached into the bone. Like where, where those were. Well, well, uh, well, well, let me uh, uh, something attached. close to home here. Imagine you with okay. hair. <laughs> Imagine you with feathers. No one would say, hey, You're right. hey, look at Daniel. There goes that cool guy. No, it's like, what's that weird feathered looking freak doing? <laughs> they would even say that if I had hair, they would say like, what, what the hell is that thing over there? That's not right. Like I have a, I have a, a face that's meant to be bald. So, yeah. All right. Your your wife and All child right, well, would not recognize you and they would they would uh they would distrust you innately. Well, I I think we can wrap up here like I I understand your position a little better. I think it's fantastic as we find out more for sure about these animals. We uh it, it's it becomes less a matter of, you know, it turns out it, they don't, you know, they don't care what you think. They don't care what you think would look cool. They were animals on their own, on their own terms. And the more we find out for sure about what their lives were like and what their appearance was like, the less we have to rely on human imagination to fill in those gaps. And so we get, they are, they get to speak for themselves as creatures in their own right. Um, but I do take your meaning that it can look a little silly and I think we actually reached for I think a Thronderdome first we reached an excellent compromise position where it's acceptable that the new crappy dinosaurs have feathers, but the classics don't. I'm willing to accept that Velociraptors are are feathered. 
As long as yeah. my yeah. as long as my main uh, boy, the T Rex, is uh, is unfeathered. I think you're in the clear. I think the if T Rex had any kind of feathering, it almost certainly would have been used like for display. So it may have had like a cool little hairdo on top of its head. But yeah, for for terms of like body covering, you're you're probably not going to have a full coat of feathers. You're in the clear there. So it's just like if the T Rex had a hat. Yeah. Or like a jaunty, you know, like a fascinator. <laughs> they call them. What is, is that what they're called? The stupid, like, half hat things that princesses wear in Great Britain when they go to, like, weddings and shit? Yeah, I think so. It's like, looks like a hat that's tilting off this uh, fascinator. Yeah, it would have been something more like a fascinator. Um, so there you have it, folks. The official Thronderdome position is that Tyrannosaurus Rex wore a fascinator. Uh, <laughs> and with that, we can we can conclude the episode. Uh, we look forward to uh, y'all joining us next time as we cover chapters 14, 15, and 16. Um, and I think we're getting, we'll have tipped over the halfway mark next episode. So we're really, we're getting there, man. Cool. <laughs> you sound so thrilled. <laughs> so excited. I, I, I want to see anyway. what Lando's up to. Yeah, yeah, we gotta see what Lando's up to. The only Armenian in space, Lando Calrissian. But yeah, we'll be we'll be checking up on him next time. And in the meantime, uh, y'all uh, have a, uh, a a wonderful time, and we'll see you next time in the Thronder Dome. Good night. <laughs>